From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. For most of us, Thanksgiving is a time of reflection, communion, and appreciation, shared around a table groaning under the weight of rich foods with family and friends. Central to the holiday is a story dating back to the 1620s, when our European forebears gathered with native peoples and peacefully celebrated a harvest. Or at least that's what the legend, myth, and selective memory would lead us to believe. Today's guest, Dr. David J. Silverman, has authored a powerful new history of Thanksgiving, which explores the story from all angles and makes the case for the way that we remember and consider Thanksgiving requires thoughtful reconsideration as we endeavor to tell the full story of American history. On this week's PreserveCast, we're exploring the untold story of Thanksgiving with an authority on the subject. Hey, it's Nick here, and as we approach Thanksgiving, I want to say thank you to all of our listeners. You've made this podcast a huge success and have grown us to become one of the most listened to history and preservation podcasts in the nation. No small feat for a podcast produced on a shoestring. And speaking of that shoestring, and thanks, would you consider making a quick donation today to help us bring more content like this to you in the year ahead? Every bit helps, and we greatly appreciate whatever you can provide. Now, let's head back to the 1620s to get the full story of Thanksgiving. Dr. David J. Silverman is the Director of Graduate Studies and a Professor of History at the George Washington University Department of History. Dr. Silverman specializes in Native American, Colonial American, and American racial history. His most recent book is This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving, published by Bloomsbury in 2019. His other books include Thundersticks, Red Brethren, Ninigret, and Faith and Boundaries. His essays have won major awards from the Alejandro Institute of Early American History and Culture and the New York Association of History. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we are joined by Dr. David J. Silverman, who is the Director of Graduate Studies and a Professor of History at the George Washington University Department of History. Uh, and we're going to be talking about his most recent book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving, which is timely uh, given this time of the year. Um, Dr. Silverman, it's a pleasure to have you here. And so before we get started, we always love to learn a little bit more about our guests. Um, so where did you grow up? And, and I suppose what sparked your interest in history and, and stories like those that you now chronicle? I grew up in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, which is about 30 miles northwest of Boston. And you know, being in eastern Massachusetts, it's a very historically minded area with a lot of focus on uh, the era of the American Revolution. Uh, I have to imagine that my, my interest in history started there. Uh, but what really sparked my interest was classes that I took in college when I went to Rutgers University. I had a, uh, an array of just top flight history professors uh, who opened my eyes just, just how dynamic and interesting historical study could be, particularly uh, history from the bottom up, as we say, you know, the, uh, the history of, of marginalized groups whose voices aren't normally heard in, uh, in mainstream narratives. Um, so, you know, my interest uh, uh, was generated at, at the college level, and then uh, yeah, I ran with it uh, right into graduate school and, and teaching and writing. 
So you get your your PhD at Princeton, and um, you, you've written extensively about um, different issues of of Native peoples and, and the history of that. Um, and you've really seized on a topic now that that is so interesting and, and so timely in terms of just trying to tell the full story of American history and trying to get that story right and sort of parse through the mythology. And, and I thought maybe it would be helpful to sort of set the stage for Thanksgiving because we actually have quite a few listeners around the globe who perhaps may not be familiar with the traditional story of what American Thanksgiving is. And so maybe before we get into the research that you've done and sort of the reality of this story, what is the myth or the traditional story we're led to believe? And, and I suppose maybe, you know, by extension, what do most Americans believe when it comes to Thanksgiving? Sure. So... In in the traditional Thanksgiving story, the heroes are the pilgrims, and these are religious refugees from early 17th century England. And the story is that these were religiously minded folk uh, whom the King of England wouldn't allow to practice their faith as, as they wished. And so seeking an opportunity for religious freedom, as the story would have it, uh, they braved the, the stormy Atlantic and then arrived off of the coast of what's now Massachusetts. Part of the story is that as they're bobbing at anchor off the coast, they draw up what amounts to a proto-constitution, right? A forerunner of the United States Constitution um, with what is now called the Mayflower Compact, uh, an agreement that uh, the people of this colony would live by majority rule and, and follow the laws uh, 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 agreed on by the majority. And then they began exploring for a site to build their new settlement dedicated to religious freedom. And where the natives come in is that they're greeted by a native leader, Massasoit. He, very rarely do, do traditional accounts identify his group, uh, the, the Wampanoags. And the story is that yeah, these, these Indian people are friendly and that the two sides get along, you know, that the natives welcome uh, these strangers to their land. And that eventually they sit down to a great dinner um, in which they celebrate their, their friendship and then effectively the natives grant their country uh, to the colonists and their successors and then disappear. <laughs> they just go away. And uh, the United States emerges from this, uh, this foundation of religious freedom and bloodless Indian colonial relations and everyone lives happily ever after. And you, know, you, have, you end up with a country that's dedicated to freedom of conscience, democracy, uh, and majority rule. And uh, as for what happens to the natives, no one really knows. So uh, obviously, um, in your book, which again is This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving, you clearly make the case that this isn't the, the real story of Thanksgiving. Um, in a really one, I mean, in a really in-depth and interesting way. Um, but before we dive in and maybe unpack that story to some extent, and obviously we encourage people to pick up the book because that's the way you can really parse all this out. But I wanted to 
ask you if you could explain how how you found the documentation necessary to determine fact from fiction. Because I think for a lot of people, when we think about this kind of work and in the preservation community, particularly when we're dealing with native peoples, there's so little writing. So how did how did you parse fact from fiction and sort of really get at what the real story is? Because it's obviously quite different from what you just described as sort of the legend of Thanksgiving. Right. So, you know, l- let's begin with the basic principle that uh, in except for very rare circumstances, native people were not producing their own written documents. Now, eventually, you do have native people in New England who are capable of producing written documents. Uh, by the mid to late 17th century, upwards of a third of Wampanoag males could read and write in their own language because there was a a thriving missionary program and the kind of reformed Protestants who colonized New England placed a heavy emphasis on lay literacy. And uh, rather than try to uh, futilely uh, teach native people literacy in English, they adopted a program of putting the Wampanoag language to, to an alphabet and then teaching writing in that format. And indeed, the, you know, the first Bible ever published in North America is in the Wampanoag language. And mm-hmm. that's, that's published in the, in the 1650s. But you know, the records that, that Wampanoag people left behind written by themselves are very far and few between. I mean, you, you, they amount in the, the few dozens rather than say the hundreds or thousands. Fortunately, when studying Native people, you know, Southern New England was arguably the most literate region in the entire Western world during the 17th century, with the possible exception of Sweden. And, you know, the the Puritans were highly literate, men and women. They left copious, copious records. Um, And more than that, you're not just getting the perspective of one society from these records. Uh, Colonial New England was divided into several different colonies, Massachusetts, Plymouth, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island. New Haven was a separate colony. Even even Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket were their own independent societies during this period of time. They weren't part of any larger colony. These colonies were often rivals with one another. They compete with one another for resources. And in that competition, they often enlisted native people against other English people. And so they're not viewing Native affairs from just one perspective. What's more, Native people had this knack for getting their points across with these colonists. Um, They were forces with which to be reckoned. I think we we always need to keep in mind when we're discussing the colonial period that Native people are most of the people. And they, they exercised an enormous amount of political, military, and economic power. And so colonists did not have a choice, even if they were so inclined, to ignore these people. If you look in the index of almost any major collection of colonial records, you will find that the longest entry is Indians, um, for the reasons I, I, I just mentioned. Now, let's be clear. Um, colonists were only interested in a narrow slice of Native affairs. It was the, the, the areas of Native life that most affected colonists. So we're talking about military affairs, politics, trade. Um, colonists did not pay much attention to Native American women. 
no attention to Native American children, very little attention to Native American religion, except insofar as it had to do with missionary affairs. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of aspects of Native American life which escaped colonial view, often because Native people did not want them to see those aspects of their lives. But uh, we can talk in great detail about politics, the economy, military affairs, intertribal relations to some degree, um, with a level of depth that produces rich history. So I drew on the robust collection of colonial records relating to Native people to write this book, plus archaeological records and Native oral traditions. So I think one of the most surprising aspects of the story, which you go into great detail in the book, is that how long before 1620 the Wampanoag people had been dealing with Europeans? I think for many Americans, there's this sense that 1620 is like almost the first time they meet. So what do most of us get wrong about that? And and why do we get that wrong, I guess? I mean, wh why is the historiography, or at least in, in popular memory, so different from the reality? So Wampanoag people and other Native people in southern New England had been in contact with Europeans for at least a full century before, before the Mayflower arrived. Uh, the first wow. documented contact between the Wampanoags and Europeans is 1524, not 16, 1524 with the, the voyage of Giovanni de Verrazzano. Um, and in all likelihood, there had been contacts in the years before 1524, because we know that a, a European fishermen from a variety of nations were active off of Newfoundland's Grand Banks uh, from at least the 1490s, maybe even before Columbus. So there were extensive contacts uh, over the course of that century, and most of them did not go well. Sometimes they involved trading, and, and both sides wanted that, but almost invariably these contacts degenerated into violence and very often into slave raiding uh, by Europeans who would take Native people and then ship them overseas and, and sell, sell them into bondage. As for why we don't know about these stories, I think there's, there's a variety of reasons. One is that you know, white Americans have been loath to acknowledge the ancientness of Native American peoples and the dynamism of their history that stretched on for thousands of years before the arrival of colonists. To acknowledge the depth and richness of that history would require paying greater heed to Native American people and their claims to sovereignty and resource rights, um, and colonialism is all about dismissing those rights. You know, what's more, acknowledging that century of contact um, would require a much more complicated story about why the Wampanoags dealt with the English the way they did. You know, the way the Thanksgiving myth is structured is Native people exist just to give their country away uh, and then disappear. Um, well, you know, the fact of the matter is they understood who these newcomers were. Um, they had some sense of what they were trying to achieve and they were responding in kind. Um, and so it would, you know, taking heed of that, that story would require treating the Wampanoags in, in three-dimensional form uh, rather than the kind of flattened way that the Thanksgiving myth does. It, it, it's so interesting. And I, I feel like perhaps, 
you know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of challenges with all of our history and the way in which we remember it and the way in which it's told. Um, but I feel like just because of the popular American memory of Thanksgiving, this is such a, a great opportunity to talk about what, what really did happen versus um, what the legend is. And, you know, it's, a, it's an opportunity really at this moment, too. I feel like this book, which came out, I guess, last year, um, really comes at, a, at an important moment, not only telling that story, but really kind of speaking to this this broader issue of um, how we remember American history, who who we talk about in history. It's just... It's critically important, and it, and it and it puts us in an uncomfortable position, probably all of us, because we all have these very fond memories of Thanksgiving, and there's sort of the the, the modern version of what Thanksgiving means to us, and then and then that myth that um, brings this all together. Let's talk a little bit more about that when we come back, and, and maybe kind of get into um, the the legend, what what gets uh, if there's anything that it gets right, and um, and we'll talk all about that when we come back right here on Preserve Cast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Estelle Hall Young, a leader of civic and suffrage organizations in Baltimore that supported African-American visibility and racial equality. Read by Casey Roan, the primary researcher of Maryland's historic context statement on the state's suffrage legacy. Estelle Hall Young, suffrage and civil rights champion. Like the national movement, Maryland's suffrage movement was highly segregated. Many white suffragists rejected the participation of African-American women and used racist arguments to support their cause when it suited them. A typical case was that made by an officer of the Women's Suffrage League of Maryland in a 1919 letter to the Baltimore Sun that read, Not only would women's suffrage give white control in these states a more permanent footing than now, but white supremacy will continue to grow. In this racist environment, African-American women formed separate suffrage organizations. In 1915, Estelle Hall Young organized an African-American women's suffrage club in West Baltimore. Young was a native Georgian who had attended Spelman College and Atlanta University, where she studied under W.E.B. Du Bois. She later moved to Baltimore and formed a groundbreaking household with her husband, Dr. Howard E. Young, proprietor of the city's first African-American-owned and operated pharmacy. Their daughter, N. Louise Young, would become the first African-American woman to practice medicine in Maryland. Under Estelle Hall Young's leadership, the Progressive Suffrage Club, also called the Colored Women's Suffrage Club, advanced women's suffrage at a time when Black women's voting rights were just one part of a much broader push for equality. Young knew that the passage of the 19th Amendment was just one step. Young didn't stop when women were enfranchised. She rallied Maryland's African-American women to vote to send a message to the state legislators who had worked to defeat suffrage on the grounds that it would expand the pool of eligible black voters. She declared, 
We women are especially bitter against the type of white politicians who said that we would not know a ballot if we saw one coming up the street. We must register in order to vote, and we must vote in order to rebuke those politicians. Young organized new club chapters, set up weekly meetings to instruct women on how to register and vote, and asked local ministers to allow five minutes at the beginning of Sunday services for a message about voter registration. These efforts were rewarded. Across Baltimore's Black neighborhoods, the Afro-American newspaper stated that women were out and forced to register and stayed in long lines stretching out on the sidewalk until their turn came. Old and young, beautiful and homely, they were there with bells on. Young and many of her fellow suffrage club members persisted in political and civic activism long after the passage of the 19th Amendment. Unlike white women, black women still faced legal voting restrictions until the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which barred racially discriminatory voting practices. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Dr. David J. Silverman, who is a professor of history and the director of graduate studies uh, at the George Washington University Department of History. And we're talking about his book, um, The uh, this land is their land, the Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the troubled history of Thanksgiving. Um, before we took our break, um, we talked uh, a little bit about um, sort of why we why we got this wrong, how we parse things out, um, and also this this interesting sense that there's almost a, a century's worth of contact prior to Thanksgiving, even though sort of the popular American memory is that it, it all starts in 1620, um, and, and Dr. Silverman um, explained how, how that's not the case. I suppose it's hard to say what is the real story of Thanksgiving, and, and clearly... You know, you've dedicated an entire volume to this, which we encourage folks to pick up. Um, but you make the case that the real story is also rooted in in division and then alliance. But if we're specifically talking about the actual gathering of Thanksgiving, like the actual moment it's it happens, does the the apocryphal story get anything right? It gets something right. It gets more wrong than it gets right. Um, there was a dinner between the English of Plymouth Colony and the Wampanoags led by their chief, Massasoit, or Usamequin. That's what it gets right. Everything else about it is wrong. Um, for, first and foremost, this dinner was really not a big deal to the participants. It wasn't the seal of their alliance. They had agreed to an alliance months earlier. There were several other events involving the two sides coming to one another's aid. Uh, in 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 when they were threatened by foreigners um, that were more important to sealing their relationship than this dinner. Neither side mentioned this event again in any of their diplomacy, at least that we have we have record of. They don't seem to have attributed all that much importance to it. Um, it gets a lot wrong. So you know, first and foremost, it it premised on this idea that the Wampanoags were simply friendly. Well, that, that is just not true. The Wampanoag relationship with the English was calculated. It, 
extended from the fact that the Wampanoags have been devastated by a terrible epidemic disease between the years 1616 and 1619, in which the Wampanoag population fell by at least half and by as much as, as three quarters. That left the Wampanoags vulnerable to raids by their Western neighbors, the Narragansett tribe, who had not been afflicted by the epidemic. And they were the Narragansetts were taking advantage of the Wampanoag's weakness to try to reduce them to the status of tributaries. Now, as I noted earlier, the Wampanoags had a century of mostly violent contacts with Europeans. So you might ask, why would they reach out to these people? And it was a gamble. It was a real gamble by Massasoit. Um, most of the tribe appears to have been opposed to making an alliance with this colony. Uh, there are many elements in Wampanoag society that wanted to wipe Plymouth out because they viewed Europeans as a threat, as indeed they were. But Massasoit's main concern was the Narragansetts, not the English. He knew the English were potent. Um, he knew their weapons were terrific, uh, particularly their guns um, and their metal swords and, and hatchets. And he wanted to enlist those resources in his campaign to maintain his independence, Wampanoag independence, from the Narragansetts. That's the reason he reaches out to these people. It's not because they're friendly. It's because they needed assistance uh, in the face of a Narragansett threat. The other thing the Thanksgiving story gets wrong is that it treats the Wampanoag-English relationship as if it was an uncomplicated friendship. You know, let's be clear, there was an alliance and it did enable the Wampanoags to fend off the Narragansetts, but this relationship went to hell in a handbasket uh, within a matter of years. As the English expand, it, of course, uh, generated Wampanoag resentment. And the stronger the English got, the more of a heavy hand they used in their relationship with the Wampanoag people, seizing their land, trying to reduce them um, to subjugated status, extending English jurisdiction over them. Um, in ways great and small, they, they took the initial Wampanoag offer of alliance and used it as a wedge to exploit Wampanoag people to the point that the two within the second generation went to war with one another in this incredibly bloody conflict that ultimately broke the back of Native American power in Southern New England. So, you know, the big point is, yeah, they had a dinner together. They got along for a brief moment. That is far from the big picture. It's, it should not be the main takeaway from this episode of history. Uh, I was going to sort of jokingly say you must be fun to have at a Thanksgiving dinner. Um, but uh, <laughs> I ruin the I, holiday every year. Uh, but I, I, in, in all seriousness, when it comes to Thanksgiving, so and, and I'm saying Thanksgiving 2020, which is in and of itself going to be a strange Thanksgiving. But as Americans gather to celebrate, um, how should that real story, I'm curious what you feel, having dedicated so much of your life to researching this and, and understanding this and, and really painting a picture just now about how it's, it's, this, it's a moment, but so much of what we, we celebrate, honor, commemorate is, is wrong. How, how do you feel that the real story of what transpired should impact the way most Americans think about the holiday? Should we change the way we celebrate or just change the way we tell the story to ourselves and our children? In your opinion, what's the right way to move forward with this holiday? Well, let me emphasize that uh, neither I nor most Wampanoag people that I know um, are the least bit 
opposed to getting together with family and friends and offering thanks for what's good in our lives. What I take issue with is attaching a patently false history to that exercise. And I'm opposed to it, not just because I'm a historian and I'm a stickler uh, for the details. I think this myth is damaging. I know it's damaging to Native people and Wampanoag people in particular. The main reason I wrote this book is that I've had multiple conversations over the years with Wampanoag people who tell me how hard Thanksgiving season is for them every year because it feels to them that at best, American society is being dismissive about their historical traumas. And at worst, it feels like they're reveling in it. And let me emphasize, you know, we live in a multiracial democracy. Um, however um, difficult some white Americans are finding that. And a multiracial democratic future requires histories that allow all elements of American society to see themselves in that, in that history. And the Thanksgiving myth does not do that. It's a whitewash of the bloodiness of colonialism. If, if I ask any reasonable adult and say, you know, do you think a shared dinner is an apt symbol of Native American colonial relations, almost to a person, people will say, well, no. Even if they don't know the details of the actual first Thanksgiving and Plymouth Wampanoag relationship, most reasonable adults, if you ask them to think about this, know it's false. So then I ask, why are you propagating a falsehood to our children in schools as part, uh, part of this history? It's not necessary for the celebration of a holiday for a dinner with family and friends and offering thanks for what's good, uh, what's good in our lives. I also think it's worth noting here, uh, white Northerners celebrated Thanksgiving for the better part of 200 plus years without attaching this story to the holiday. That was a late 19th century invention. And it was an invention by white Protestants in the North who are uncomfortable about a number of developments in American society between 1850 and and 1900. They were uncomfortable about the influx of Catholic immigrants from from Europe. Uh, They were uncomfortable um, uh, with the rise of free black people in the United States, including the North. Uh, They were uncomfortable with the way that the United States was becoming associated with the story of slavery and then Jim Crow, and the story of the violent subjugation of Native people in the West. The Thanksgiving myth addressed all of these cultural tensions. It allowed white Protestant Northerners to become the heroes of the American founding rather than, say, uh, the 'er ne'er-do-wells of of colonial Virginia. It allowed a story about friendly Native American colonial relations to become the founding of the United States, rather than the story of bloody Indian colonial warfare and slavery, which is more characteristic of, of colonial development. It was a story about a family colony in the North dedicated to religious freedom thereby distracting from the unfolding stories about slavery, racial injustice, and the violent subjugation of indigenous people in the West. It allowed New England to be the exception um, to the, you know, the, the, the darker story of, of American history. Um, so in, in all these ways and more, 
this, this story was doing cultural work for white Protestants in the Northeast. The other thing it has done over time is it has tried to get people with last names like mine, Silverman, to identify with the pilgrims as we, as fellow white people. Let me emphasize, I do not descend from the pilgrims or uh, the Puritans who followed them in New England. And both the descendants of the pilgrims and the descendants of the Wampanoags are my fellow Americans. And so from my perspective, they both deserve to be treated in three-dimensional form if we're going to recount the history of this period. Thanksgiving myth does not do that. It is a, a fantastic answer. I mean, that's just a really, <laughs> you, you obviously have spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I think what you said about the need in a, in a multiracial democracy for people to see themselves in history, I mean, that is just, uh, that might be the quote of the year for PreserveCast and something that not only is important for people working in academia, but also people working in our field in, in historic preservation and trying to think about how we make sure that the places that we protect and the, pl- the stories that we tell um, are representative of that that broad swath because we're not going to have a historic preservation field or movement if it is not diverse um, because we we need everyone to see themselves in, in the work that we do in the places that we save. And, and sort of maybe as a segue to that, um, I, I would presume, given your research, that you've spent some time at the historic site Plymouth Plantation, or at least you've been there. I'm curious what you think about their interpretation and how that has evolved and how you feel as if they're telling that story. Uh, I, I have a mixed mind of it. And I, let, let me say from uh, the outset, I do not envy the task of the directors of Plymouth Plantation. To tell the story as I recount it, warts and all would ruin their museum. I mean, they, you know, they do have to sell tickets to the public. And the fact of the matter is the public wants an uplifting patriotic history. Um, that's what brings people into the museum. Now, I, you know, I, I think they do a pretty good job of acknowledging that Wampanoag people existed um, and that Wampanoag people had had their own perspective on these events. And indeed, you know, they, they see themselves as a bicultural institution and there is a Wampanoag section of this living history museum run directed by Wampanoag people. Uh, who tell the story from uh, from their own perspective. Um, but, you know, l- let's be clear. If you told this history with all of the power politics and bloodshed and exploitation, if you treated both sides in three-dimensional form, neither the descendants of the Mayflower passengers nor the descendants of the Wampanoags nor the ticket-buying public would be happy with it. Good history, by which I mean history that's told in all of its disturbing detail has a tendency to make everyone upset. And my job is not to sell patriotism or to sell an uplifting story. My My job is to tell a complex history in all of its complexity. Museums have have a, a different task. I mean, they need to bring in audience members and they need to answer to the demands and the concerns of their various constituencies. I am grateful I don't have to do that. I, I think that, that that is an, an apt answer. And I think that they, you're right. They have done a, a tremendous job to try and em- embrace all of that. But 
telling it in that level of complexity is tough, particularly when, you know, somebody might spend an hour or two on site and how you get into the level of detail that you would need to is, is a, is a challenge unto itself. Right. You know, I think, you know, what Plymouth Plantation wants to do is they want it, what they have done. And I think pretty well is they have now told a more nuanced story of contact. They don't want to tell the story of the degeneration of that relationship and ending in King Philip's war. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that's a much harder sell. It's a, it's a disturbing story. It also means that they would have to tell the story of the challenging survival of the Wampanoag people after that devastation. And that is also a very complex, difficult, disturbing story to tell. Well, if there's any takeaway from today's interview, it's that um, the story of Thanksgiving is not as simple as perhaps portrayed and is is extremely complex, which is why it's so wonderful that you tackled this. I'm curious if people want to pick up the book. I mean, obviously they can go to Amazon, but uh, I want to let you give a plug for where they can find out about it. And I'm also curious where they can find out more about you if they're interested, or um, maybe you can give us a an idea of what you're working on next. Well, if you're going to buy the book, I would encourage you, particularly during the pandemic, to order it through your local independent bookstore. They they need the help. Uh, let's keep these let's keep these independent local businesses afloat. Um, that's the way we do it. Don't take don't don't make the easy purchase through Amazon. Amazon's going to be fine, um, but our our local merchants uh, need our help. So you know, or go through an independent bookstore like Powell's. Um, uh, you know, which also funnels uh, resources to these uh, these local uh, these local businesses. Um, my, you know, I don't have a social media presence uh, at at all. Uh, it's part of what allows me to write the time to write these books. Um, so, if you're interested in learning more about me, you can go to the George Washington University History website, and uh, my profile is posted there. And can you give us a sense? Are you working on anything right now? Something? Um, what's the next research topic? Yeah, um, I'm I'm undertaking a major research project right now. I'm I'm in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests and the 1619 project, and this renewed national conversation about race in America and its historical origins. Um, I'm making an intervention by writing a wide-ranging, four-century-long history about the role of indigenous people in American race history. Um, I think too often, um, particularly of late, that history has been cast merely as a story of whites and blacks. That is not how American racial history unfolded. American racial history has been triangulated involving indigenous people, African peoples, and European peoples from its very beginnings. Um, And that, you know, part of the American gen, uh, uh, white American agenda of making Native people disappear, right, of making Native people irrelevant, has been sidelining them from that history, too. Um, Native people played a profound role in, in the evolution of race in America, and I intend to bring that story to the public. Well, that is a huge topic, and so timely and really looking forward to hearing about that and hearing more about it. Um, we'll have to have you back um, when that's published, although I'm sure that that is no small endeavor uh, to encapsulate that. I mean, that, that seems like it could be multiple volumes. Uh, well, hopefully it won't take too long. We'll see. 
Well, it's it's necessary and it's important. Um, so before we leave, we ask this of everyone. What is your favorite historic place or site? I have a lot of them. You know, when I was growing up, uh, there's no question that uh, one of the places I drew inspiration from was Old North Bridge in Concord, Massachusetts. Um, people from my town participated in the Battle of Concord. Um, and I, you know, I always found it inspirational, this, you know, this idea that everyday peasant farmers um, took up arms against the most polished army in the world <laughs> at the time uh, to defend their right to self-rule. Um, in more recent times, though, you know, as I've uh, been focusing on Native American history, I've been interested in historic sites that relate the ancientness of indigenous people in the Americas to modern times. And there are two sites that have really stuck with me recently that achieved that. One is, uh, both of them are in Alberta province in Canada. Uh, and one of them is a, um, is Head Smashed In, which is a site that is run by the Blackfeet people. And uh, you know, this was a buffalo jump where native people for thousands of years would orchestrate buffalo stampedes off a cliff so they, they could harvest the herd <laughs> um, in, in large numbers. And um, they engaged in this practice until they adopted the horse, a new technology, a new colonial technology, at which point they left off this practice because they didn't need it anymore. Um, and, you know, the fact that you see the effect of this radical technological change in the adoption of the horse and the fact that this site is being interpreted by modern Blackfeet people um, is profound to me. There's another site, um, it's a short drive south of Hedge Smash Inn. It's called Riding on Stone Provincial Park. And uh, this is a, an air, a badlands in southern Alberta that has petroglyphs from over the course of thousands of years left by indigenous people, the ancestors of the Blackfeet um, and multiple other uh, native groups. And some of these are geometric signs that are really difficult to interpret, um, but other petroglyphs include a car from the 1920s, right? And so you, I mean, you see native, this, these are native records, right? Native produced records left over the course of many hundreds and maybe even thousands of years. Um, and I, I just find it incredibly moving and humbling. Well, those are two fantastic answers. And we recently had on a member of the Iroquois tribe um, talking about another native site, um, Ganondagan in upstate New York, uh, which is a Seneca site. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that this this could be a whole future preserve cast to uh, take a look at uh, native sites and how they're interpreted because it's it's such a fascinating piece of our history and uh, obviously given your interest and background and the the volume that you're working on, um, hopefully something we see more of in in the future because there are so few sites um, dedicated to that story and and telling that story and particularly operated and and run by native peoples so that they have the opportunity to tell their own story. So. Fascinating answer. 
just a fantastic interview. So much fun to talk with you and, and get a sense to hear from you. Um, and so timely as as we approach Thanksgiving and in a difficult year, which much to, with much to give thanks for, um, much to be concerned about, and uh, an important time for us to think about the true origin story and how this all came together as we try and get our history right and, and tell that full story. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks for the interest in the conversation. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.